It is a joy to be with you this morning. Um, love what the Lord is doing through Grace Hill in this community, and, and I am really so encouraged by the um, quality of leaders that the Lord has given you uh, for this church, and really just the, the core group and the folks that we've met this last weekend uh, in doing this evangelism conference. So welcoming, so kind, so thoughtful about the scriptures and about how to engage community, and so uh, I believe God is going to do great things through you all in this community. He's going to use you, and it seems like he's positioned you right where you need to be. Um, I I look forward to the day that this uh, auditorium here will be full of people from the community who walk to this church, um, who who live close by. They come in. I hope that the Lord will use you to plant new churches, uh, to send out missionaries, to uh, develop other leaders, to to send to other places that aren't as... um, full of good leaders. And so that's my hope. And that's, that's why the Lord has made the church, is to fill the earth with his people everywhere. And so I pray that you all get to be used that way in, a, in a, uh, the, the process of multiplication that he uses to fill the earth, to fill this community. And so uh, it's a joy for me to be here this morning with you. We're going to be in Acts chapter 18. Uh, I love this uh, chapter of the book of Acts. Um, I, I had the privilege of preaching this for the first time as we worked through the book of Acts um, in our local church in Wake Forest. And uh, it just, you know, I, I got assigned to the passage and didn't realize just the gold that's here. So I, I look forward to sharing that gold with you this morning. Uh, as we begin, uh, there's only been a couple of times in my life when I've been really, really scared or, or maybe even terrified uh, but, but one of them uh, comes to mind really, really, really readily. I had been in uh, Haiti for about two weeks. I was with my two older brothers and another dear friend of ours. And we're kind of walking around town. And, and we walk up this road and we see some tires in the middle of the road that are on fire. And if you've ever been to Haiti or uh, uh, another third world country, burning tires really aren't all that strange. And so we kind of are like walking this direction. We see these tires. And as we get closer, we realize There's boulders, kind of big rocks like this, in the road, sat in the road, uh, arranged along with these tires. And so we're like, huh, that seems like a barrier of some sort. Like it's trying to keep something from coming this way or that way. And so just then, this dump truck comes towards us and stops right in front of this barrier. Well, just as quickly as it has come up and stops, it goes in reverse and goes backwards as quickly as possible. As if it's fleeing something that's behind us. And so, of course, uh, we turn around to see what it is that this truck is fleeing from. And we realize that there is a mob of people pouring out from behind this building. Evidently, they had been hiding there. And when I say mob, I don't mean a small, happy mob. It is a large, angry mob of people with rocks and machetes. And they all have bandanas on their face. And they are coming at us, like pouring out towards us. And so, we were afraid. And if you're ever in this situation, you should run. And we did. And so we run down this alley. We kind of cut down this alley to, to hide. And so these, these, this family kind of sees us running down this dirt alley. And they say, come inside, come inside. And they, they put us all inside with the children and the teenage girls. And we're hiding inside. And so uh, we're, we're kind of hunkered down. And, and then shooting starts. Lots of shooting and so uh, being in a, a hut made out of tin and reclaimed wood is, is not very um, 
uh, confidence-inspiring in that situation, and so we are scared, and we're huddled under this table, and we're hiding. And, and if you're ever in that situation, you should pray. And so uh, we started to pray loudly, like, dear Jesus, help us. We don't want to die in this situation. All of us were you know, just, just praying out, calling out to the Lord. And uh, the shooting stops, and, and we kind of look up, and we notice that everybody who's in the house with us, mostly children and Teenage girls are looking at us like, what are these guys doing? And so we kind of climb out from under the, the table that we're hiding under, uh, clinging on to one another. And, and, and we realize that they're not all that concerned. And so after asking a couple of questions, we realize that, well, this has been happening. This exact thing has been happening over and over again about once a week for a couple of months. And so at this point, nobody really cares well, all the shooting was police coming to shoot guns in the air to like scare people away. And, and in the U.S., if there's, if there's police shooting guns, it's, it's not like that. And so uh, we were uh, rightfully very, very concerned about what was going on. But after some investigating, we, we realized, okay, this is a false alarm, not something to be scared about. But as we start our passage this morning, you're going to see that the Apostle Paul comes into a situation, and he is rightfully scared. He has good reason to be scared. The passage we're going to look at this morning is Acts chapter 18, and Paul uh, is coming into Corinth for the first time. And if you've read the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll know that in chapter 2 and verse 3, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. So he tells them in this letter that he writes to them, I was afraid when I came into Corinth. And so many times we don't think about the Apostle Paul this way. We don't think about him as a person that would be concerned or be afraid. And so the question then is, what does the Apostle Paul have to be afraid of? So let's, let's look back for a second. Um, just a year earlier, Paul and his closest friend Barnabas, they, they had a sharp disagreement and they parted ways. Then Paul links up with Silas. And they go through Asia. And as they go through Asia, they are forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak a word. This is the very thing Paul intended to do, was to go through Asia speaking the word of God. And then the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to go to Bithynia. And he's feeling a little bit aimless. And so Paul has a vision. God gives him this vision of a man from Macedonia asking them to come and help. And so, concluding that God is calling them, they go into Macedonia their first stop there is in Philippi, where they are stripped and beaten and jailed. Then they are forced out of town, and they go to Thessalonica. Persecution arises, and a mob forms. And before they can be taken hold of by this mob, they flee. Then they go to Berea, and the mob from Thessalonica follows them to Berea. Then Paul flees as far as Athens. So he goes from Berea to Athens, and when he arrives there... He sends for his friends who he has left behind. So he left by himself. He goes into Athens. He's left his friends behind and he says, look, come to me. Then Paul is essentially laughed out of Athens for preaching what is most dear to him, Christ and the resurrection. Things don't go well in Athens. A couple of people believe, but he, he receives sharp, sharp disagreement. All of this happens in about a year's time. And so understandably, Paul is pretty low when he comes into Corinth. And we read this in chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. It says, After this, Paul left Athens, went into Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, 
recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So our passage picks up this morning as Paul comes into Corinth. And the first thing Luke tells us about Paul's time in Corinth is that he finds a man named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. And so one of the things that you might kind of wonder at first is, are these people believers? So did he just meet them, they're not believers, or were they believing people that he comes together with, that he seeks out? And so I'm inclined to say that, they're yes, they are believers. And, and here's a few reasons. So these two had just been ejected from Rome because of their ethnicity, and the odds of being persecuted while hanging out with Paul are pretty high. So if you've just been run out of one place and come into another, you probably would not be hanging out with Paul because there would be high risk of persecution because he is a Christian. Paul then lives with them, and so it would be pretty strange for an unconverted Jew to let Paul live in their house if they didn't believe in Christ as he did. Thirdly, they do business together. And so again, it seems that unconverted Jews who had been run out of Rome would not risk their stability by doing business with Paul. In addition, the idea that these folks are Christians is plausible because they came from Rome where Christianity is already active. There's already a foothold there. And also it's possible, remember, that Aquila and Priscilla could have been in Jerusalem 17 years earlier on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached to the Jews who were visiting from Pontius. And so it's possible that they have heard the gospel, they're believing the gospel, they're trusting in Christ, and that's why Paul finds such a, a ready reception with them. Some translations say that Paul found Aquila, others say that they met, and so it's not clear if Paul sought them out or if they just met by chance. Uh, but if they were Christians, um, Paul seeking them out, that would make sense, that he's trying to find friends. If you follow Paul through the book of Acts, he does not travel alone. Paul always has people with him. He does not do ministry by himself. And so I think that the apostle Paul is looking for these folks and has found them. And he's doing all of this on purpose. So either way, Paul finds Priscilla and Aquila. And Priscilla and Aquila are exactly the people that Paul needs. A friendship, a place to live, and work to do. As uh, Alan mentioned, my family and I, we lived in Dominican Republic off and on for a handful of years. And in the spring of 2013, we moved into a small Dominican neighborhood. Um, and, and we were transitioning from work in Haiti to work in Dominican Republic with Haitians who live there. And so uh, when we got there, we had no furniture, no car. We, uh, we had no English-speaking friends, uh, little to no Spanish could I speak. Uh, we had little understanding of the culture. And, and we were, it was just kind of like we were dropped into, the, into this place. And so that was a bit intimidating. Uh, we felt very, very alone. And so after a few days of being there, I noticed some children playing in a, in a neighbor's yard. And so there was, there was these two black children um, some Dominican children, and one white kid with blonde, blonde hair, almost white hair. And so um, I started to kind of wonder, like, who are these folks? Uh, and so the next day, I see this kind of 
tall, broad-shouldered guy standing there with a handful of children kind of milling about him, and this blonde-haired kid is with him. And so we started to talk to one another and kind of sniff each other out as missionaries do, kind of figuring out, okay, who are you and who are we and what are you doing here? And so we really hit it off with them. And so the next day, uh, my wife, Steph, uh, and, and I, we go over and we start to talk with this guy and his wife, Pat and Jenny. And so we found out we had a ton in common. So we, at the time, we had four kids and they had four kids. Two of them were adopted from Haiti and we had done a lot of work in Haiti. Uh, he loved college basketball and so do I. Uh, we both wanted to care for the poor with, with responsibility and, and with clarity. And, and, and so we started to see all these similarities uh, between us. And so over the next two years, our families would become family. Uh, we worshiped together. We studied the Bible together. We prayed together. We had dinners together. We celebrated birthdays together. We did life together in a way that made ministry more joyful and doable and sustainable. And I believe, had God not given that relationship, we wouldn't be where we are in ministry today. That, menace, that, that family, that relationship sustained us through really hard times, and I think we did the same thing for them. And that was God's special, special gift for us. That's exactly what we needed at the time. And so God has people, and he wants those people to be together. And the miles have been one of the greatest gifts of God to our family. We still meet with them. We do uh, New Year's with them. And he forged this relationship for us so that we could flourish in ministry in that place. Pat and Jenny were Priscilla and Aquila to us, and we needed that. And so here's my question for you. Do you have a Priscilla and Aquila in your life? Has God brought to you near and dear Christian friendships that soothe your heart Right, they, Relationships of love that are good towards you, that soothe you. Have you sought out those relationships? If you don't have that, is it because you haven't looked for those? You haven't developed those? You haven't sought to, to have those in your life? And so if you're, if you're feeling weak in your pursuit of God and his mission, ask God to send you brothers and sisters to bolster your faith, to build up your faith. Pursue this. Seek this out. And so uh, God did not intend you to do ministry in this community by yourself. He wants you to have buddies. He wants you to have people in your life that you can link up with and engage people together with. He wants you to have a Priscilla and an Aquila in your life. And so the other question is, are you being Priscilla and Aquila for those who need you? Are you doing that towards someone? Are you being hospitable? Are you having people in a safe place in your home? Would Paul find a place on your couch? If Paul came through town, would you say, Paul, stay at my house? Would he find a job at your business, the business that you own or the place where you work? Would you say, hey, we need to hire this guy? Would you take that risk? It's a risk. You know, you may, you may lose some accounts by hanging out with Paul. By aligning yourself with the gospel, you might lose things. Your family might tell you, you shouldn't do that. The question is, are you loving and caring for people who have devoted their life to ministry? Are you bringing them in? Are you loving and caring for them and then learning from them and going in that direction? So Priscilla and Aquila are exactly what Paul needs. And we see that he links up with them and then he goes right after ministry in town. 
And so as is Paul's pattern, he reasons in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks that Jesus is the one that God promised would come. It seems that Paul is working to provide for himself through tent making with his new companions, and then he's using the synagogue as a platform for proclaiming Christ. So he's working, making tents, but then as often as possible, he's in the synagogue proclaiming Christ to them. We see in verses five through six, it says, when Paul and Silas, or I'm sorry, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was, that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he took, or he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So at first reading, it seems like that Silas and Timothy, they arrive from Macedonia, and Paul is so occupied with the word that he doesn't have time for them. But if we look at a, a different translation, the NIV, it, it reads like this in verse 5. It says, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. So it's probably better to understand that when they came, it put him in a position to devote himself exclusively to the preaching and teaching of the word. So this is due to a couple of things. So why is it that their coming puts him in a better position to devote himself exclusively to the preaching and teaching of the word, meaning that he didn't have to tent make anymore? So first they brought good news about what is happening in Thessalonica. So last Paul knew, Thessalonica is a hot mess. There's mobs, stuff is crazy there. Uh, he doesn't know that good things are happening. And so uh, he gets this news that great things are happening in Thessalonica because he left uh, Silas and Timothy behind. They did ministry there. And so they were able to bring him good news. And we see this reflected in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 3 where it says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day, that you may see, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So even as you read this, you see Paul is just really excited about what's happening in Thessalonica. He's gotten this news, things are going well. And so he's encouraged. He's happy to hear that the work that he invested in Thessalonica, it wasn't in vain. God's blessing it and God's moving and God's working. So first, he's encouraged by them. But secondly, they bring money. Uh, we see this in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. It says, but when I was with you, this is Paul talking to the Corinthians, writing back to them. He says, but when I was with you in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So we see that when he was in, Thess or in uh, Corinth, he didn't receive anything from them. So how did he live? Because the people of Macedonia were investing in the work that he was doing. And we see 
in Philippians chapter 4, he really specifically speaks back to the Philippians about this. He says, yet it, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. So we find out that the money that these guys bring comes from the church at Philippi. So as uh, Paul was one, uh, not one that worked like a traditional job, uh, much like uh, many missionaries, many church planners, many pastors, um, the way that he lived was on the generosity of others. And I, I know this experience firsthand as a, as a missionary. We raise uh, part of the uh, money that we live off of is, is raised through the generosity of other churches. Uh, we couldn't do the work of establishing a seminary in an impoverished culture without the investment of other churches. Our students pay a little bit for the work that they do, but it's never going to be self-sustaining. Education never is. And so uh, we're happy to know that churches like Grace Hill have invested generously because God is generous. You have been generous towards the work that we are doing. And we couldn't do this without you. And so let me encourage you. Continue doing that. Look for other ministries to invest in. Look for missionaries to invest in. Look for church planters to invest in. Because they can't do it without your investment. They're going to places where um, people haven't heard. Uh, there's not an established church. They don't take up an offering. Uh, they don't have people that are investing in the work. And so your investment is a great encouragement to them, and it sustains them in the work that they do. So thank you so much for the investment that you've made in us. Um, it, it's a joy to us. It sustains us and puts wind in our cells as we do the work. So, Paul has some good news about the churches in Macedonia. He has a little bit of money in his pocket and his two dear friends in ministry are by his side. And so he fully devotes himself to the preaching and teaching of the word. So he's teaching, and as usual, he's receiving opposition from the people that he's teaching. They revile him, and they mock him. And he does something really strange. It says that he takes off his garment, and it, he shakes it out in front of them. Now, why would he do that? In this time, and at this place, and these people, they would know that this is looking back. It's looking back to Nehemiah chapter 5. And he's loosing himself from responsibility for them. And we see that reflected in what he says. He says, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. So he's teaching them. They're reviling him and he begins to take his shirt off, begins to take his clothes off and he shakes it out in front of them. And so Paul feels a personal responsibility for these people and for their souls. And it's not lightly that he, re he relinquishes this responsibility for them. His insistence that he is innocent of their blood, it should push us a little bit. And, and why should it push us? Why should we be a bit convicted here? Because his innocence is rooted in the fact that he has spent weeks, maybe months, telling these folks of Christ. So it's not uh, very, uh, it's not quickly that he does this. He's spoken to these folks. He's explained the gospel to them. And now he can say, I've done what I should have done with you. You have not received it. 
So here's the, on the other hand, we have to ask this question. So uh, if he had not shared the message with them, would, they then there, would he then therefore be innocent? And I think the answer is no. He knows he has responsibility towards these folks to share with them. He's shared with them, and now he can say, I'm innocent of your blood. Your blood is not on my hands. It's on your own head. Paul believes and teaches that those who live and die without faith in Christ will spend eternity under the wrath of God, hell. Those who have never heard and never been told of the grace of God in Christ to save sinful men and women and children, if they never believe and are never reconciled to God, they will spend eternity apart from the loving care of God. They will never experience his love as they ought. And Paul knows that. And so the, the motivational truth behind what Paul is saying is that every person in Corinth will either bow down before God in humble love and worship or they will burn up under God's just and awful wrath for eternity, paying the due penalty for their sins against God. And the same thing is true here. Your friends and your neighbors and your family and your children will either bow down or they will burn up. And we have a responsibility to them. We hold the good news that God loves to save sinners. And he sent Christ to do just that thing. And so the question is, are you holding it like this? Do you hold that truth close to you for yourself or do you hold it out to others? Are you holding that out to people that they might experience and understand and hear of the love of God? So who has God drifted into your life so that they could hear? And will you care enough about them to tell them hard but really good news? Will you care for them that way? Will you take responsibility for them that way? So Paul tells the Jews of Corinth that he will no longer come to them in their place, the synagogue, and he will no longer focus his efforts in Corinth on the Jews. Rather, he will pursue the Gentiles that are there in that community. And so in Acts uh, 18, 7 to 8, we see this. He says, <clears throat> And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And so Paul does exactly what he said he was going to do. He leaves the synagogue and goes to the house of Titius Justice, who we are told is a worshiper of God. And this most likely means that he was a Greek who had stopped worshiping all the gods that would have been associated with his community. And he has begun to worship the one true God. And it may be that this is one of the Greeks that was mentioned back in verse 4, who Paul had been reasoning with in the synagogue. This would follow seeing that Paul goes directly to his house, indicating some sort of relationship and commitment to Paul's teaching. And so Paul is getting nowhere with the Jews. So he turns his focus, and in so doing, he puts the Jews in a position to where they have to put up or shut up. Then something really amazing happens. The ruler of the synagogue and his whole family, they believe in Christ the Lord. So imagine with me this morning. 
I'm the Apostle Paul, and, and you're a mixed group of Jews and Greeks, and we're in the synagogue. And I'm telling you that, that Jesus is the promised one. And you begin to yell at me and oppose me and all that I'm saying. And so I begin to take my shirt off and I shake it out in front of you. And as I'm doing this, things kind of get quiet because you, you see me doing something that you understand is a judgment against you. Things quiet down. And I say, okay, have it your way. If you want to pay the penalty for your own sins, that's on you. I've told you the truth, and I'm free from responsibility for you all. And now I'm going to people who have not heard as you have. Then I leave, I get up, and I walk out the door. And I go next door to a house that's just across the street. And as I do that, Alan, who's the ruler of the synagogue, he stands up, he and his whole family, and they follow me out the door. This would surely incite jealousy from the Jews. And it seems to be a really useful technique of Paul's to get their attention. So much so that the ruler or the president of the synagogue, Crispus, and his whole family, they leave the center of their community, the Jewish way of life, and they go after Christ. This would be much like an imam in a, in a local mosque being converted to Christianity with his whole family. Right? This is a really, really big deal. It's hard to, it's hard to, uh, to explain the weight of what's going on here. Uh, this would be like the mayor or the center of the community, the most important person in the community, uh, a community leader but also a religious leader coming to Christ, leaving behind all of his old community and beliefs and even family at some level, to follow Christ. And so Paul's focus on the Gentiles, it, it bears fruit instantly. And we read in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1 that Paul baptizes Crispus and Gaius. And Gaius is probably this guy, Titius Justice. So he, he baptizes the, the ruler of the synagogue. He baptizes the guy that owns the house next door. And because of the hospitality of Titius Justice, they have a place to gather and people are hearing the word from Paul, and people are believing, and they're being baptized. And so some super exciting things are happening in Corinth. Really, really good stuff happening in Corinth. People are being baptized. They have a place to meet. People are being converted. All the things that Paul wants to see happen. And so in verses 9 through 11, this happens. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And so it seems kind of strange that God would send this vision to Paul just as things are going so well. Why would he do that? Why send a vision when things are going well? We would have expected this back in verse 1 when Paul comes into town and he's discouraged. But if we think back and remember through the book of Acts, when things go well, Paul gets persecuted. And so Paul, as things are going well, is thinking persecution's coming, persecution's coming, it's going to happen. And the Lord Jesus meets with him. In verse 9 it says, uh, Luke says, the Lord says, and, and by that he means the Lord Jesus. And so the Lord Jesus comes to Paul in yet another vision. 
And Jesus intends to speak directly to how Paul is feeling. And he knows exactly what Paul needs to hear. And the, and the Lord acknowledges Paul's concern and he, and he quells them with the greatest remedy possible. His very own presence. He says, I am with you. I'm with you. So if I'm with you, who can be against you? And the Lord affirms what Paul has already been doing. And he insists, keep on doing this. Keep on speaking. Jesus then explains that no harm will come to him. Nobody's going to mess with him. And God makes this really specific promise that he intends to keep, as we'll see in a moment. Then Jesus tells him exactly why should he keep on speaking. What is the purpose Why should he keep on speaking? And he says this, I have many people in this city, many in this city who are my people. Jesus says to Paul, I died to make specific people in Corinth mine. He says, go on speaking so that they can come to me by faith in our message. And the fact that Jesus died to save specific sinners is the single greatest motivation to share the good news that I can think of. Because I can be sure that many will come to faith because Jesus died as a ransom for many. I can go out with confidence. God is with me in Christ. Christ has done the work that is necessary to save sinners. And now it is my responsibility to announce to them that great work and leave it to Christ. To let him complete and finish that work. I'm really thankful that Luke decided to include this vision in here because it's something that I need to hear. And and I want Jesus to speak to me about the people he has in my city where I live. I want him to speak to me about the people that I'm supposed to talk to. This morning I was sitting uh, sitting in a restaurant and there was a guy sitting across from me and I could tell that he was falling asleep. And so after a bit, I realized that he, um, he probably was there because he didn't have anywhere else to be. And so I prayed for him a little bit. I was able to, as I was leaving, I was able to engage with him, talk to him a bit. Uh, he had been a chemical engineer. Um, had, uh, his meds had gotten messed up. Um, he uh, had suffered some physical ailments, lost the job that he had, uh, had been living in his car. His car just got impounded. And so he's having to live outside and kind of go from restaurant to restaurant. Um, and so I was able to talk to him. I was able to say, hey, you know, God loves you. Um, he has a plan for you. Uh, let's pray about this car thing and see what the Lord does. And so uh, there's all sorts of people in this city and in this place that God wants you to speak to. And so the question is, how do you, uh, how do you know who to speak to? How do you know who to go after? Let, let, me, let me help you a little bit with that. So uh, hold up your hands like this. I do a three like this, so you don't have to do it like I do it, but Hold your hand up like that. And so what I want you to do is to come to mind three people. Bring to your mind three people in three different categories. Family, community, and work. And I want you to label each of these fingers with a person, family, community, and work. Somebody from your family, somebody from your community, and someone from your work. And I want you to begin praying for them. Just pray for them. Pray for them for opportunities. If you can't find someone to put on this list, pray about who should be on this list. Begin praying for them and see what the Lord does. Just ask God to tell you 
convince you and lead you towards the people that he has in your community, that he's put around you. Then I want you to ask one another, who are your three? How can I pray for your three? This is a really, really simple way to start asking God to speak to you about who he has in this city. Would you be willing to do that? I hope, I hope that we can do that together. Ask God to help you find the people that he's working in. So this week, I want to encourage you, speak to someone about Christ. Pray for someone. Hear their story and then speak Christ towards the story that they're experiencing right now. So in effect, uh, Jesus has said to the Apostle Paul, three balls, no strikes, swing away. Swing at the ball as hard as you can because you can't lose. I'm with you. I'm in this. No one's going to hurt you. Let it rip. Go after it. I've got people here. Like, that's amazing. He tells him, like, this is going to work. I've got people here. I just want you to stay. Keep doing what you're doing. No one's going to hurt you. Go after it. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul needs to hear. The last year of Paul's life has been pretty rough. And so hearing this from the Lord uh, is a great encouragement to him. And so he stays about 16, about 18 months there in Corinth. That's a long time for Paul. Paul moves a lot in the book of Acts. And so he stays with them for a long time. And then we see in verses 12 to 17. But... When Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a, ju a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. So sounds like Sosthenes has replaced Crispus. They take him and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. And so as usual, the Jews, they come after Paul. But by God's grace, it took a while for them to put this whole thing together. But nevertheless, uh, they take Paul to the judge. They charge him. And as Paul is about to defend himself, the judge says, look, this is a matter of semantics. I'm not going to talk about this with you guys. Get out of here. And so uh, they go outside. And what do they do? Like a, a, every good mob, they have to find someone to beat. And so they beat this guy, Sosthenes. What's most notable about this part of the passage is that all that the Lord told Paul and promised him to do, he's done exactly that. Paul resisted the temptation to be fearful, and he went on speaking. The Lord ensured that Paul was not harmed, even though he was charged. And lastly, the Lord kept his promise that he had many in the city. Because we see in the book of First uh, and Second Corinthians, the church has grown large enough to have factions. And so the church at Corinth grew very, very large, probably met in multiple different houses and was big enough to have different factions of people who were disagreeing with people. God was faithful to bring people to himself, even those who were very unlikely. Do me a favor, open to 1 Corinthians 
And I want you to look in the very first verse of 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter one, verse one, what does it say? What does it say? Sosthenes. So either Sosthenes is like, you know, number one name on baby list for first century, or this is the same guy. Sosthenes is drug out of the tribunal, beaten. But at some point, Paul gets a hold of this guy, shares the good news with him, and he's converted. Take a moment and think about how unlikely all of this is. It's pretty unlikely that two rulers of one synagogue would come to Christ in 18 months. That's a big deal. That's really unlikely. In fact, this whole account of what happens in Corinth could be judged unlikely. It's pretty unlikely that Paul would find such dear friends upon entering a new town while he's all alone. And it's pretty unlikely that the house next door to the synagogue would become a meeting place for the church at Corinth. It's pretty unlikely that a judge would side with Paul, the spokesman for a new sect in the Roman world, over the Jews and official Roman religion. It's pretty unlikely. And all these things are pretty unlikely unless God is at work in Corinth. It's all pretty unlikely unless the Lord has people in Corinth. It's pretty unlikely that a high school dropout is teaching you the Bible right now. But I am. And it's pretty unlikely that we are reading about an apostle who once killed Christians as a way to express devotion to God. But we are. Brothers and sisters, how unlikely is it that God would put on flesh and live among us and die a gruesome death, taking our place so that we could be saved, that he would save the likes of you and I? This reality should take our breath. We should be surprised every time we hear about this crazy but true story. All this is totally unlikely unless God is for us unless he is with us. So let me ask you, will you seek out unlikely people? The most unlikely person that you can think of, will you seek that person out, believing that God has people and that he is with us? We can't lose. Will you lavish the love of God on someone, even today, even between now and when you get home, by telling them of his unmatched kindness towards sinners through Jesus. God wants to do something really unlikely in this community. And he wants to use you to do it. He's with you. He's for you. You can't lose. Three balls, no strikes, swing away. The question is, will we swing away? Will you do that today? Will you take the risk Will you talk to that person? And will you let God work through you? Let's pray that the Lord would do that in us. Lord Jesus, speak to us about the people in this city, specific people. 
speak to us about how you want to use us. Comfort our fears. I pray that you would speak to us specifically about the specific fears that we have. Many of them good, many of them true. We ask that you would speak towards that. Free us, Lord, to speak freely about the kind love and grace that you've lavished on us in Christ, that we might call others into that love and kindness, that others might be freed as we've been freed. Give us names. Lead us. Holy Spirit, protect us from the fear that enslaves us and binds your word. We love you and we commit ourselves to you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your grace and kindness. Amen.